the little clip that I showed you earlier uh, where the song was called You Are Here. Uh, and to me, it's a really, really uh, central part of the work that I'm doing is to connect people. Uh, it just happens to be that they're around the globe. You see, the Father and Jesus were talking together one day in heavenly places. And throughout the old covenant, the righteousness and the faithfulness and the compassion of God had been poured out from heaven onto the brokenness of humanity. Sometimes it was by the way of raising up a leader such as Abram or Moses or David. Sometimes it was by way of a miracle breaking through from heaven such as a burning bush or the daily provision of manna or of food or of driving back of the sea. Sometimes throughout the old covenant, God's faithfulness and righteousness uh, and, and were poured out by way of his judgment. Maybe it was a disaster or a crisis, such as a serious economic downturn to bring people back to their senses. And sometimes it was by way of a prophet who could speak the word and the justice and the righteousness of God without fear into rebellious and self-conscious communities. But still we, the people, rebelled. So one day the Father and Jesus were talking together and once again, they were voicing out loud the possible strategies that would be appropriate at this moment of time for the restoration of his people on earth. What should we do this time? Should we send another leader? Should we send another miracle? Should we send another disaster? Should we send another prophet? But on this particular day, the tone of the conversation rapidly changed. And the father turned and he gazed out of the window and he became quiet. He became very quiet, deeply thoughtful, intensely troubled. Jesus stopped in mid-sentence and silently watched his father's back, slowly, deeply, without a sound, the reality of enormous truth, which somehow he'd known since before the world began, but somehow today it dawned on him afresh, and eventually with a cracked voice, he quietly said, it's me, isn't it? It's me. I've got to go, haven't I? I've actually got to go. And for the rest of the day, the father sat with Jesus and outlined his ultimate plan for the salvation of the world. Every few minutes, new depths of awareness crashed into Jesus as the father outlined what sort of birth he would have, what sort of life he would lead, what sort of death he would suffer, and why. Incarnation. It's all about being about being here. And it's all about acceptance, about God's acceptance, of God's coming alongside. An Isaiah 53 sort of acceptance, all about Jesus being despised and rejected. A man of suffering being held in low esteem, but surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. Of John chapter 1 sort of acceptance, about Jesus being the word of God, with God from the beginning and about the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. It's about Philippians 2 sort of acceptance, all about Jesus being in the very nature of God, but not considering that equality a thing to be grasped, uh, but all about making himself a servant, about humbling himself and becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. It's all about 1 John 1 acceptance, where John in his epistle was able to say of Jesus, we have heard and seen and looked at and touched 
that which was from the beginning. Incarnation. You are here. So when we say God's presence is with us, when we realise that he is here among us, you think, what a miracle it is. It's not just the omnipresence of God. It's the fact that he made choices. Choices to come alongside. Choices not to limit himself to miracles and to prophets and, and to disasters and to leaders. But he came alongside by sending Jesus. That's what incarnation is all about. It's rich, isn't it? It's wonderful. It's beautiful. So, Father, when we say you're here, you're with us, we want to say we appreciate once more that uh, you, you've created us as humans and so perfectly you know our human need of someone coming alongside us with acceptance. And we thank you, Father, that you've chosen the most precious person throughout eternity to you to do that, your son. We thank you that in the coming of Jesus on earth, you just demonstrated once more the perfect love that you have for us and the prices you're prepared to pay in order to win us back to yourself. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Dave, would you come and read to us from the scripture? So we're reading from John, and it's chapter 7, uh, beginning at verse 53, and then through to chapter 8, verse 11, and in your pew Bibles, as you'll see behind you, it's, or behind me, it's on page 1073. Then each went to his own home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered round him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? No one has condemned you. No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Hey, thank you very much indeed. I'll carry straight on and we'll music later. Andrew, thank you. So, you might want to keep uh, your finger open at uh, that bit, John chapter 8. So Jesus didn't just send another leader, didn't send another earthquake, didn't just send another miracle or another prophet. This time he actually came, lived and he dwelt among us. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made uh, through him. Anything without 
him nothing was made that has been made, but nevertheless he came, born in the stable in poverty, in the poverty, violence and instability of the times. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We know how he was born, we know how he died, how he rose from the dead and how he ascended back to be in the immediate presence of the Father once more. But today we're just going to take a few minutes to glimpse at how he lived, how he related, how he responded to encounters with a sinful and corrupt world in the story often referred to as the woman caught in adultery. So we'll look at those verses again, John, the very end of John chapter 7. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Homelessness is a concept in the New Testament Astatio in the Greek, uh, Alpha Statio. And Paul used this expression of himself once. You remember he said, you know, I don't think he was depressed that day, but he was saying, hey guys, I've been through it a bit for the sake of the gospel. One of the things he said, apart from a few beatings and imprisonments, was homelessness, meaning before or without or outside of status, establishment, standing, anchor, root, Uh, a place or a state. It's a very vulnerable position to be in. But when we read those verses there, they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Have you ever felt the loneliness of these verses before? Just Just how vulnerable did Jesus actually feel? How discouraged was he? How How cold, how hungry, how lonely... How odd did he feel? And how did he spend the night? Yeah, with the father, I think we'd all say that. But but what did he say? What did he do? What did he feel? I guess he probably prayed a bit and slept a bit. And he wrestled with some things and he walked and he cried out and he worshipped and he kicked a few stones and sighed and slept a bit more. Or does your Jesus just glide like a robot, unemotional, fixed, glazed smile looking an inch or two over other people's eyes and arms slightly raised? No, no. Jesus could fully identify with the homeless and with the unhappy and the bereaved and the misplaced and the displaced and the refugee and the exposed and the abused and the vulnerable and the marginalised. He is the lover and the restorer of the broken. Let's read on, John chapter 2. Sorry, John chapter 8 and verse 2. At dawn he appeared again, the temple courts where all the people gathered round him. He sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses Moses commands us to stone such women. Now what do you say? And they're using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Has it ever occurred to you when reading this passage that a woman caught in the very act of adultery is not usually caught in the very act of adultery alone. Where was the man? 
Another glimpse at the law reveals that sometimes the woman should be stoned, but always the man should be stoned. So all these thoughts and the injustice of them would be weighing heavily as a deep frustration and grief upon Jesus' heart as he faced this situation. The scribes and the Pharisees did and said all this to test him. In other words, they intended to push him one way or the other, either into contradicting the Mosaic law or into falling foul of the Roman authorities who didn't allow Jews to carry out a death sentence. So it really was a heads-you-win, tails-I-lose sort of situation, or a lesser man than Jesus would have thought that way. But this morning I just want us to imagine that scene. I want you to climb into it with me this morning. Imagine the pride, the haughty arrogance of the Pharisees as they presented this impossible situation to Jesus. Imagine the total and utter shame and possibly seething anger of the woman. Imagine the overwhelming flood of diverse emotions that Jesus must have been feeling as he was presented with this scenario. Imagine the expectant tension among the onlookers as to what was going to be the outcome. We'll read on, middle of verse 6. But Jesus bent down and started to write in the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, let anyone of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and he wrote in the ground. And at this those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Why did he do it? Why why did he stoop down and write in the ground? Did Jesus feel trapped or threatened? Possibly, but I don't think so. I believe his only and total concern was for the woman. He is, after all, the lover and the restorer of the broken. Was he at a loss for what to say? Possibly, but I really don't think so. Such is his creativity. I believe he had so many options of things he could say that flooded into his mind at that time that he was probably asking the father which one to say. And I also believe he was diverting the attention away from the woman, subtle but deliberate act of kindness, which she herself may never, ever have realised was for her. I'm left wondering how many times Jesus has done things which seemed incidental, but which actually have been for my sake. He rescued me, brought me dignity, relieved me of shame. And I still don't even realise he's done them. (laughs) 
God gave him a pearl of of wisdom. He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Could there even have been a hint of a twinkle in his eye as he said this? Not of scorn towards the Pharisees, but as a visual communication of acceptance towards the woman. Then he crouched down again and just carried on writing. In one sense, it seemed without a care in the world, but in another sense, still very, very attentive as to what would unfold. And one at a time, the older ones went first. It wasn't that they were wise, but they did recognize wisdom where they saw it. It took a a little longer for the fight to die in the younger ones, but before long, and unable to hide their embarrassment and their defeat, they shuffled off as well. So we pick it up again in verse 10. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. So Jesus straightened up again, looked at the woman. His eyes were eyes of kindness of purity, of trustworthiness. Now quite a few men had looked at her in her time, but no one had quite looked at her in this way. Where are they? Did did no one condemn you? He almost sounded surprised, entering into and enjoying her surprise. No one, no one, Lord, or All her anger was gone now. She'd been tamed by Jesus' kindness. She'd been broken by the awareness of her sin. But she was still pretty nervous. And instinctively she knew that the departure of the Pharisees wasn't going to be the end of the story. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Now go your way. From now on, sin no more. This is really important, ladies and gentlemen. I want us to see and to be absolutely clear about this. Never did he compromise on the sin, excusing it or ignoring it. However, the overwhelming impression was of kindness, of grace and of acceptance. He is the lover and the restorer of the broken. He is the peacemaker who deals with sin, not the peacekeeper who avoids the issue. And in it all, mercy triumphed over judgment. The person had triumphed over the policy. The individual had triumphed over the issue. Intimacy had triumphed over inquest or Inquisition, compassion had triumphed over condemnation. Mercy triumphed over judgment. Do you not know, said Paul in Romans, that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance? Not his wagging finger. Do you not know it's God's kindness that calls us to repentance? John 
said it was the law that was given through Moses. But grace and truth were realised in Jesus Christ. And one of the psalmists said, loving kindness and truth have met each other. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Isn't that beautiful? That Psalm 85 and verse 10 demonstrated by Jesus and the relationship that he had with this woman in, as we read in John 8. He is the lover and the restorer of the broken. Well, let's respond. I'll respond with a song. We've said during this morning, we looked at a song, you are here, we've acknowledged the incarnation of Jesus was the coming of God to walk alongside uh, broken men and women. And I think it would be good that we respond to you are here by saying, here I am, we'll use the song Majesty, here I am, humbled by your majesty, covered by your grace so free. Here I am, knowing I'm a sinful man, covered by the blood of the Lamb. But now I've found the greatest love of all is mine. Since you laid down your life, the greatest sacrifice, so we worship majesty.